welcome to Firmly Planted Podcast, where we get to dive into the scriptures for our everyday lives. Please do not forget to subscribe and to share this episode with your family, with your friends, and anyone who you think would benefit from our discussion today. Now, without further ado, let's dive in to the scriptures together. Thank you for joining Firmly Planted Podcast, where we dive into the scriptures for our everyday lives. It is amazing that we can get into the Word of God, know Jesus more, grow in our relationship with Him, and how we can make an impact in people's lives. I have had the privilege of spending time with my friend and mentor, Dr. Aragon Canner, where we have invested into students' lives, where we have had a D now uh, this past weekend, and we saw three professions of faith. Many students just draw nearer to Jesus, and uh, we're praying for this to be a lasting impact. The The name of our student ministry here is Impact Student Ministries. Our desire is to have students impact other students. And so we had a weekend where we called it Equipped, and we desire to equip them to go make an impact in students' lives. So Dr. Kanner, I'm so glad that you joined me. Man, I'm happy to be here, brother. So we are going to be talking about, we're going to go ahead and dive right into this, about different worldviews because we are trying to understand what is happening in our, in our current culture and just, gives us a, just give us a basic idea of what we're going to talk about today and just kind of where we're at in our culture. Right, because uh, as we stand right now, 2022, uh, not to put a timestamp on this, but post-COVID, um, the world of apologetics has changed, basically because the worldviews have changed. Um, part of what we would call the lockdown, part of what we call conscription would be causing a lot of people to become more introspective, but we've also had a rebirth. You had the end of the, end of the uh, Avengers movies. You have right now, as we speak, uh, global worldviews and global world attacks that are religious in nature. Um, and so we're seeing the rebirth of certain things. For instance, the rebirth of henotheism. Um, this is all new. And uh, with the writings of a guy like, like um, J. Warner Wallace, um, forensic faith, using judicial proof to um, reconstruct a historical narrative. I mean, Christianity is hooked to history. Matter of fact, Jesus made sure that it was hooked to history, which means if anybody can disprove the historicity of Christianity, then we should, by all means, leave. Um, it's called like a new evidentialism. And there have been guys who've been doing this for the generations before us, but it's never been this loud, this fast, and this challenging, this quick. So uh, that's the overview. We're not just talking about the basic seven worldviews. We're not talking about atheism, agnosticism, pantheism, panentheism, deism, etc. We are now in a world that is um, radically denying the fact that there's an intimate, personal, loving God wants to have a relationship with everybody. Either Christianity learns to answer their questions and to engage them, uh, or we become increasingly irrelevant. We're seeing mainline denominations that not only don't answer the questions, they end up, um, they surrender. They surrender, give up, think that they're going to bring in new people by being open to polyamorous uh, relationships, omnisexuality. But what happens is it's like the 60s. In the 60s when they said, well, we'll, we'll jettison the virgin birth and see if this brings in new people. Yeah, it didn't. 
As a matter of fact, what happened is people ran away. So we're seeing surrender on the side of certain forms of Christianity, and we're seeing an engagement now. This may be getting ahead of ourselves, but what do you think has led to our culture shift so far away from this intimate personal relationship with Jesus? Well, um, when I'm teaching my students, I'm at Arlington Baptist University, one of the first things I do <coughs> is I hit them with the, the history of global religion. We are Bible-believing Christians, right? When there was the birth of Charles Darwin's writings, uh, the evolutionary hypothesis, here's what happened. The secular world continued to study world religions. Christianity, because we rejected the evolutionary hypothesis, we became more insulated. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we should embrace it. I'm saying we should have engaged. But what we did was Christian schools and, by and large, uh, Christian churches, Bible-believing Christian churches, when we started talking about worldviews, we talked about atheism and the cults. So those of us raised in the church, uh, we studied Mormonism, Scientism, Scientology, Christian Science, maybe an Adventist here or there. But this this became a massive split. So the secular schools, the state colleges, they began to have degrees that were like the history of world religions, right? Whereas we limited ourselves to the guys who were experts like Mary Baker Eddy, Christian Science, we would address that. But it was usually just cults, not world religions. So, again, I'm 55 years old. When I, when I was young, if we talked about on Missions Week, we talked about a Hindu, they'd show a PowerPoint or they would show a slide. And it was something you saw in National Geographic. Here's the problem. In 2022, the average student knows at least two people who are vegetarian or vegan, friends, close, intimate people, and they're vegetarian and vegan based on belief. Mm. The, belief the belief that there's amsa, that there's life, uh, in the animal, and that soulish life of the animal, uh, it's a Hindu concept. So, our kids are engaging with Buddhist activism, Hindu veganism. Uh, we're seeing a birth of the yoga movement. Nothing against yoga, but I'm saying those who believe it philosophically, um, that you straighten up your chi, your chakra. We're not giving them answers. Um, I love the idea that my son has participated in um, Christian martial arts. But when the martial artist, the guy who's the leader, expects you to call him master and bow to him walking off the mat, I don't call anybody master. But if I don't give my son an answer as to why, he's just going to do it. So what happened is Christianity, we became experts in a small part. The secular schools, they became global. So Baha'i, Buddhist, Near Eastern, Far Eastern, Middle Eastern religions. Here's a problem. God said go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. By and large, we didn't. So he brought the world here. We're becoming increasingly like a bowl of Skittles. If we don't know how to present the gospel in the language of people, answering the questions of those specific people, again, we're going to be answering questions nobody's asking and silent when somebody asks a real and genuine question from their assumptions. We can't let the state schools do for us what we should be doing. That's why this rebirth of what I call the globalism or uh, global apologetics, 
the ability to answer the questions of a Hindu, it's different than the assumptions of a Muslim. Um, a Hindu has no problem saying, I accept Jesus as Lord. I've used this in class. The, an evangelist goes to India, comes back and he says, I saw 250,000 saved. We think they're lying. No, you're, I don't, maybe they're not. If you ask a Hindu, do you accept Jesus as Lord? He has no problem bringing Jesus in alongside the other ones, his other gods. You have to ask a Hindu to accept Jesus as Lord alone because they have so many, 330 million gods. Well, it's different than, say, to a, a Native American, somebody who's a practicing uh, Choctaw or Cherokee, because in their world, they hold to a spiritism or a tribalism, and they don't have a written tongue. That's why we call it animism or primitive animism. Their system, they don't have a written tongue. You can't come to that guy and say, um, the Bible says. They don't have a clue. So how do you share the gospel with them differently than you do with a Hindu, differently than you do with a Buddhist or a Confucianist, because Confucianism rejects any kind of mention of God? How, how do you present the gospel? If you don't know how to do it, if your friends are embracing these things and you don't know how to share the gospel, well, you might as well just keep your mouth shut. Instead, there was a generation of guys like Norm Geisler, Wynn Cordewin, and now J. Warner Wallace, who in fact said, Christianity is based on the fact that there's deism, a, an intimate, personal God who wants a relationship with all people. We have to find a way to share the gospel with them. This movement brought us out of the just cult studies, and now we engage in what you want to call it, global faith, global religious engagement. So we call it the 1880 split. Hmm. So for the average Christian, mm -hmm. do you think in the recent 20, 30 or so years, they have just depended on the professionals to do apologetics and have stand, stood by, or what is your perspective on Yeah, that? or missionaries, sure. They would think that the missionaries can do it. Like a missionary who's serving in the Philippines, and he learns Tagalog. What type of answers does he give to somebody in the Philippines? Well, we, we just say, okay, they're going to do it. Problem is, America is a melting pot. Now, I do not, I reject the idea that America is multiracial. Um, we're, uh, we're, you know, whatever you want to call it, multicultural. We have many races, but America has a culture. We're a buffet. They're here. You go to Dallas, where I serve, all 16 major world religions are represented. There's a Zoroastrian temple in North Dallas. There's two forms. There's actually nine Islamic masjid madrasas. There are five different types of Jewish, you know, reconstructionism, orthodox, conservative, Kabbalah. Man, you've got friends. Our kids have friends that believe these things. Two things that I would point out real quick, just for fun. The event, when I referenced the Avengers, um, my son massively into it just like I was. But the Avengers is actually the rebirth of henotheism, Greek mythology. Henotheism is not like polytheism. Polytheism says there's many gods. Henotheism says there's bigger gods and lesser gods. Stronger gods, weaker gods. And there's like a hierarchy. Um, in fact, they will say, love Thor, help us Thor, help us Iron Man. Nobody ever says, help me Hawkeye. Because Hawkeye is limited in his supernatural powering. So we have entire systems now being rebirthed out of mythologies, DC versus Marvel. My son, 
when he was younger, was massively into anime, Dragon Ball Z. Well, that's Taoism. Tao from Lao Tzu um, and the I De Ching. You have Confucianism. You have the rebirth of yin and yang. And another one that I'll give, because it's fascinating, in 2022, again, not to timestamp this, but in the last two years, we've seen a rebirth of a new worldview. It was a worldview that existed in the Greek times under a guy named Diogenes, who was a very practical guy. Diogenes the cynic. Diogenes didn't believe anybody, right? They say he traveled in a bathtub. He would hold up a lantern and say, I'm looking for the face of one honest person. Well, in modern terms, Anthony Jeselnik, the comedian, Anthony Jeselnik made a point of saying when people ask him if he's a Christian or not, or if he's a believer in God, he said, I am an apatheist. It's putting together two words, apathy and theism. And in his discussions, and he's a very intellectual, very smart guy, um, Jeselnik says, even if there is a God, it's got nothing to do with me, even if there's a God, he has no effect on my daily life. So how do you present the gospel to somebody who says, I don't care? You can't just say, well, they're agnostics. No, that's not what he's saying at all. Agnosticism has its own issues. He is saying, you guys are trying to answer eternal, spiritual, vacuous issues in soulish nature. So what? What does that matter to me? I've got a job, I've got to get a job. If I don't have a job, I need money. If I need money, I have to get money. He doesn't believe it applies. If you were going to start a new religion, if all of a sudden uh, Tylerism was going to be a religion, you have to do four things. You have to give them answers to their life. So where did I come from? Where am I going? You have to give them something to belong to. You've got to give them some sort of ethic. And, right, so how do I live based on this Tylerism? And even if they don't believe in sin, they have an issue of guilt. How do I deal with when I don't feel like what I'm doing is right or wrong? Is there some sort of normative standard? Every religion has to do that. Well, to an Anthony Jeselnik, you have to point to them and say, you have no purpose or hope unless there's something you're aiming for or coming from. And If you have no purpose or hope, why are you doing what you're doing? And how do you define whether you're successful or not? So apathyism and henotheism and the rebirth of the agnostics, the thing is, if we can't explain to them that without purpose and hope, everything becomes a diversion or everything becomes a distraction, then they will never understand if, if what they're doing matters. If you're going to measure it by money, then there's your standard. If you're going to measure it by time, there's your standard. They're trying to act as if there's not a standard. There actually is one. And it's a very inconsistent way to live because there is a sense of where do you get your morality from right. for, a, for a person like that. Right. right. It and what be, kind of answer would they give? Well, but you can't give it culturally. They're trying to right now. Right now, they're trying to define it by culture, and they're saying, especially in a world of CRT, they're trying to say culture will define whether something is true or false. Problem. We have cultures in 36 countries around the globe where if your firstborn child is a female, it's a disappointment. And you can bury it face down, kill it, because you want to have a child who's a son, who's an heir. We have those who do this, and they do it culturally. They do it. They have a justification to do it. Um, women are only getting the right to vote in certain countries right now, or own property, or hold positions of power. So, 
if they didn't get those things, because it's culturally defined, are they right or wrong? Or does it mean that what I would call rape, they could simply say is in a viable outplaying of my anger? Uh, you were talking about massive definitions. You're talking about an entire judicial system. The law can't make people good, but it does restrain evil. And how you define the law has to have a standard. I've often said, if you want to get married, say you're a homosexual and you want to get married. Great, you can get married. You can marry anything you want. You can marry a tree. Problem is, right now, they want us to say that what they're doing is correct or right or morally equal. Now you're in our field. Now you're in our world. In the civil world or in the secular world, you can do anything you want based on the law. Asking us to approve of it. You know, those of us who are evangelical Christians, no, not going to happen. So you can't define it that way. We're, we're talking about the very essence of existence. Um, I was dealing with a guy who calls himself an atheist. I didn't think he was. I said, so are you saying that it is absolutely impossible to know that there's a God? And he says, well, what do you mean? I go, are, are, I'm asking you the question. There is no God. You're absolutely certain there's no God. He goes, no, I, I don't think... I said, well, then technically you're an agnostic. He goes, yeah, that's fine. Now all I got to do is figure out if he's a soft agnostic or a hard agnostic. A hard agnostic says we can't know. It's impossible to know whether there is a God. A soft agnostic says, I just don't think there's enough evidence. Now you're in my field. And like Norm Geisler used to say, it only took me five minutes and he had gone from atheist to hard agnostic to soft agnostic. We're also seeing a rebirth on the religious war side. Every, every war that takes place has religious implications, every single one of them. And we're seeing it based on belief. If, in fact, Russia holds to a hardcore atheism, secular humanism, awesome. You want to build your system on secular humanism, that's fine. Which form? Because there's three forms. Secular humanism, it could be positive. That's Julian Huxley, Brave New World. For him, man who doesn't need God is good and getting better. And so for Huxley, he was a positive humanist, a positive Marxist. Man, if given the opportunity, will work together. Problem is that man is evil and we fight all the time. Every piece of soil, everything we do. So positive humanism, positive secularism. How about negative? Man is evil, shut up and leave me alone. That's Nietzsche. Echo homo. It's um, Jean-Paul Sartre. The world is horrible. Man is evil. Give me something to smoke. Light it up. Let me microdose my MDMA. I will find a reason to live. Find a reason to get up. Negative humanism is almost anarchy. And it's where some singers in the 90s ended up. It's where the people who believe that uh, hopelessness is, seems to be the standard. Third option. We're neither good nor bad. That humanism is based on nurture. And we're neither good nor bad. It's our culture or it's our environment. That's B.F. Skinner. Problem with that is, again, you're not defining your terms. So how do you know if a secular humanist is successful? Russia says it's going to be by production. America says, because we're capitalist, America says it's going to be based on not production, but consumption. So if I'm providing content, 
that people are consuming and they are rewarding me with it, then I am a successful secular humanist. He who has the most toys. Everything has a moral dimension. And uh, where we, we will talk about how a follower of Jesus can make the right steps to, to, yeah. to begin shaping and changing this, but let's just say Christians continue to stand by at large, hmm. evangelical Christianity. It's specifically here in America, because that's where most people have their context. What do you see happening if we just stand by? We'll become more like the mainline denominations. Um, there used to be an old book, there still is an old book by Niebuhr, called Christ and Culture. The options are very fascinating, because he wrote it back in the 50s, 60s. The idea being uh, how your church defines itself in, the, in relation to culture. There's the Christ of culture, Christ against culture, Christ in paradox with culture, Christ transforming culture, etc. Mainline denominations began to define church as base. When I come to church, it's safety. It's a place where I can feel comfort. It's a place where I feel protected. And thus, any intrusion into that disturbs my ethical core. And what ends up happening is visitors are pushed away. People are in your parking spot, they're in my pew. You're messing with my safety. In the mainline denominations, the world was horrible, terrifying, Vietnam, etc. I wanted one place to be safe. And so because of that, church became their safety. They became ineffective. The world grew around them. Their buildings stayed the same. The people in them became older. The money coming in begins to dwindle. Again, when mainline liberal denominations in the 60s and 70s, post-World War II, post-Korea, when they tried to make differences, they became liberalism. They became modern liberalism because they said, well, let's get rid of the supernatural elements and it'll bring in people. It doesn't. Nobody innately wants to reject the supernatural. If God is God, he can do whatever he wants. What they were basically doing was becoming more and more ineffective. They were growing smaller and smaller, shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. It's going to happen to us. Neo-evangelicalism is going to die because what they're doing is they are capitulating on every point. They hate patriotism and they try to redefine it as um, nationalism, like we're somehow white supremacists. I'm not even white, but you get the idea. They're trying to redefine it and saying, wait a minute, if you're patriotic, if you reject patriotism, every veteran that's a member of your church will walk away. How dare you diminish their sacrifice? So do what you want. Continue. We got guys who are you know, no longer giving invitations, no longer training their people in evangelism, no longer asking them to ask their friends, inviting them for friend day. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to get the results you're aiming for, which is nothing. You can't. Uh, we began this entire podcast by talking about the rebirth of evidentialism. I believe I can point you to a tree and show you that there's a God who loves you. I believe there's more evidence in, in support of a theistic creation and a God who loves you, without question. But then we got guys who are beginning to teach that God is actually a God of hate, that he hates most of creation, created them for damnation. That's Islam brother, even though they're defining it in Christian terms. The Quran teaches Allah will kill whom he wants to. You fall down, bust your knee, you're supposed to get up and say, inshallah. Well, if you point to the people and say, huh, 
God hates you and has a plan for your life. And it includes, they may call it the doctrines of grace, but it's actually the doctrines of damnation for the vast majority of people. Why would I want to be a part of that? How can I turn to my child and say, I am absolutely certain God loves you when you can't? Well, we can't know. Yeah, you can. God is either the God of love, as he defines himself, or he's the God of hate. And if he's the God of hate, evidentialism won't work for you. And evangelism doesn't matter to you. And you redefine everything. So we now live in a world that's going to top, it's going to cross 8 billion within the next year. 8 billion people. 1.6 billion Muslims. 1.3 billion Hindu. Shivite, Vishnite, Brahmanite. Uh, Mahayana Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism. They're going to be followers of something. They're religious. They have rituals, they have rules, they have things they do, and they follow them. None of them will answer the question. As you referenced this week, uh, in the weekend, God-shaped hole in their heart, the vacuum that Pascal talked about. They have this massive hole, everything they're trying to fill it with doesn't fit, but we're silent. Evidentialism says, mm, no, Christ died for you. And he's calling all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17. He wants you to be saved. Here's my way of explaining the gospel to you in a way that perhaps makes sense, given your categories, and maybe me asking you some questions that make you uncomfortable. I like the uncomfortable. I like, we talked about, I embrace the cringe, um, because I think you learn when you're not feeling satiated. So if we will step up and take the plate and do what God's called us to, we can change this. God can move. You had, you referenced, um, what can we do? Do we just expect the preachers to do it or the apologists? Nope. I am a free evangelical, which means every member, every ministry, every voice, every vote, I believe that every single person, born-again, blood-bought believer in Jesus, I believe every single person has a call on their life, a ministry to which they are to be invested. And it's going to be an act of service. I think every spiritual gift, 1 Corinthians 12, twice, 1 Corinthians 14, twice, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 5, I believe that every time there's a list of the spiritual gifts, the one thing they all have in common, they're acts of service. You are never more like Jesus than when you are serving other people. If we are not busy serving the people around us, including our neighbors, our friends, kid whose locker is next to mine, um, I have a thing with my students. The very first lecture of every semester, I have the faxiums. One of them is a faxiom, it just means factual axioms. Um, one of them is nobody deserves to hear the gospel twice till everybody's heard it once. Uh, that's an old Keith Green statement. How dare you expect somebody to hear it for the 15th time, but have no desire to let everybody hear it once? We have thousands of dialects that don't have the Bible in their tongue yet. We have entire cultures being discovered, people groups, who need the gospel and need somebody who can put it in their language. And I say it this way, I don't mean to be harsh. I, I don't. But if I'm going to start a church in Paris, and we're only going to sing Southern Gospel. You know who I'm going to reach? I'm going to reach expatriates who love Southern Gospel, who are bitter and angry and leaving their local church in Paris to join our church because we're singing the music they love, right? But we're singing in English. 
you're not going to reach Frenchmen. You're only going to reach expats. I say that because that's the way we present the gospel. You don't present the gospel on your terms. You present the gospel, use the categories they use, the vocabulary they use, use the assumptions they have. And that's why global apologetics sort of flips it. Now what we're trying to do, and in my degrees, your degrees, um, we are trying to present the gospel in a way that they will go, got it. Go back to the, one of the original questions. How do you present the gospel to somebody who doesn't have a written tongue? Those who are primitive animists, mythologies, um, people who are following, like there's the order of the Jedi, you know. They, maybe they don't have a written tongue or a written book. How do you present the gospel to them? Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus was ministering in a world that not all the world had literacy. Not everybody was educated. So what do you do with illiterate people? You can't point to the Bible and say, here, let me show you what the Bible says. He did peripatetic ministry. He told stories, narratives. He did it walking and talking. I'd point to some of the great guys on the West Coast right now. Their church may not look like church or the way that you and I would feel comfortable. Um, their sermons aren't necessarily like our sermons. Somebody's not standing behind a pulpit and opening up the book and expounding. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, but they find a different way of telling the Word of God. Because again, if you tell them verse 8, and they don't even know what verse 1 means, and they don't read, are you just going to quit? No. You find a way to tell the stories. Christ pointed to Zacchaeus in the tree. Christ pointed to the waters. Christ pointed to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes. He found some way to tell stories. Luke 15, he told three of them, three lost things, lost coin, lost sheep. And then he dragged it to our faith. Uh, I think that that's the means with somebody who's a primitive animist. It's not the means with somebody who's an intellectual. Or Middle Eastern religions, modern Judaism, Islam, Baha'i, um, these groups have a right and a wrong, a written book. They have a means, Zoroastrianism was there as well. They have a God, they have a right and a wrong, a heaven and a hell. For them, you have to use logic, reason, explanation, um, and walk them through it, argue with them. Just a different method. But if we don't do it, look, I would rather fail trying than succeed in being lazy. Mm. And on that point of being lazy, uh, I've talked to several pastor friends of mine, youth pastor friends of mine uh, in the field that I'm in as student ministry. Yeah. And uh, just across the board, there seems to be a a lack of commitment in several followers of Jesus when it comes to different things. What can we do as pastors to facilitate some of this? I adore you for asking that question. Um, so if you have to take any of my classes as a student, you don't have an option. It's required that you go with me to a temple or holy site. We go on vacation, we're Baptists. Uh, Calvary Chapel, whatever. And so I'm going to go and visit a Calvary Chapel. Nope. I will drag you to a Hindu temple, to a Buddhist monastery. I will take you to a masjid. I will take you to a service. I will engage you with people who don't look like you or talk like you. Now, there is one answer. That's Christ. There's one hope. That's the cross. Period. He's resurrected the living Lord who's returning. Period. Questions change, though. 
answer is the same. So the way we engage is to gently, but firmly, um, make them uncomfortable. For instance, with my students in D-NOWs, you know, long, I've been doing these for 36 years. I don't do them all the time now. I'm only going to do it in a place where, number one, the person is like-minded. We're going to, we're not just doing this to reach in. Because if all we're doing is going to a conference where it's inward, discipleship that doesn't lead to evangelism isn't real discipleship. And evangelism that doesn't lead to discipleship is spiritual child abuse, right? You get them saved, the baby's at the altar, it doesn't know what to do. So you're, you're also doing it to service that way. But we disciple them to disciple others. We lead them to Christ so that they can lead others to Christ. So to engage them in a fully orbed system, we got to drag them out of their narcissism. Here's the problem. An entire culture in 2022 is based on looks and likes. It's narcissism. How many people are looking at me? Well, that's a neat thing. It's an interesting way to do it. I will use everything at my disposal, but it's not about me. So getting them to turn the phone around. It's not about the selfie. That's the hard part. Mm. And ultimately, it's a heart issue for, for many to, to shape their perspective that my life isn't about me. It's about surrendering to whatever God's called me to. Right. Uh, I mean, Jesus said to take up your cross daily and follow me. And, and it's so hard in our culture where they say the total opposite. Yeah. And, and you are being told everything is about you. I heard, it, I heard somebody say that America is no longer a producer. We're a consumer. Consumerism means somebody's going to provide something, content for me, that I will stream, that I will absorb. That's sort of narcissistic, too, because it's for me. So I binge, and I do it just as much as anybody, but I binge that show. I watch that. I, had, I scream this. Um, I don't know how many people hear me when I do it, but I, I scream it. Don't go to a church that feeds you. That's stupid. Go to a church that makes you hungry. If they feed you, you eventually get full, satiated. Don't go to a church. Don't tell anybody, I'm going to go to a church that feeds me. Nah, you're an idiot. Go to a church that makes you hungry. So that when you leave on a Sunday, you are launched into your own study going, wait, I want answers. Mm. I would rather students be hungry than fed. Mm. You give them the Word of God, absolutely, 100%. And I am as orthodox, probably more than most people uh, that I deal with. But I want the students hungry. Give me that and I will do every D now. Give me that and I will do every camp. If we don't have that, it's going to be more and more about church as my selfie. Church is my safety. Church is my seat. And eventually, the people around us just turn into noise. It's like a state fair. Everybody's got a booth. The placement of your booth and the purpose of your booth often affects how you do what you do. If you're in the corner, but you're comfortable and you're air-conditioned, some people may walk by and go, ooh, it feels nice here. But <laughs> I want to be in the middle of it. I want to be surrounded by the people. I don't want it to be cacophonous noise. I want to hear individual voices. I want to actually have an effect on the people who showed up. Mm. Fact. It's the only reason I'm here. It's the only reason God kept me alive. Mm. And to do some of the things, I would assume, 
that need to be done when it comes to pastoral or church leadership ministry. It is going to be difficult and, and to be uncomfortable. So give an example of something that a pastor or a church leader can do to motivate some of these yeah, things. Yeah, I would, I would call you on one thing. I would probably say it's not difficult right now because nobody's doing it. Mm. Um, what we are dealing with right now in this global approach, the evidentialism, it's only been around for about 50 years. Again, guys like Wynne Cordowin and, and uh, Norm Geisler pointed us in that direction, prepared us for it. But by and large, nobody's doing it. If you, as the youth leader, all of a sudden take your kids to a camp and you say, we're going to be going to camp. You're going to be hearing sermons Sunday, um, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. You're going to hear it in the morning and in the evening. But instead of just doing rec in the afternoons, instead of doing that, but going and doing service projects, random service projects, not just aimed at Christians, but anybody, finding ways to reach into places that are populous. Yeah, the Agora, going into the middle of the marketplace. Um, in our culture, they call it the souk, you know, the outdoor market. You find a way to do a service project. You are putting those kids in a position where they're uncomfortable sometimes. And you're not asking them just to pass out gospel tracts. What if you were passing out water at a marathon? What if you are building a ramp for the handicapped? What if you guys are singing at a nursing home? You give them a random service project that they can get nothing from. The definition of service, biblical service is, I'm doing something for somebody who can do nothing to return the favor. Uh, I think that's one way to engage. I like, in our method, you know, I take them to houses of worship that are not good ones, that are not real, that are not biblical. Um, but I take them there, and they know we're coming. We never, we never surprise anybody. We don't lie. I tell them we're a Christian group coming, students from Arlington Baptist University. We can ask you questions, you can ask us questions. Um, I will even begin to feed the students food. Like if you go to a Sikh temple, they'll feed you. It's part of their worship. Um, again, it's uncomfortable. It's stuff you don't recognize. Maybe it's food you don't know. But it's also putting you in a position of seeing something new from an entirely different perspective for the first time. The Zoroastrians had no idea that there was a Christian group willing to come. When we showed up, they said, we have never had a Christian group come here. The Sikh, the same. The Buddhist monastery, we were the first Christian group on the campus. I do those because it fits into the academic world. Youth pastors and pastors, man, you can engage in a hundred different ways. Um, race to me is a false construct because everybody has the same needs. Gender is a false construct. Now they are clearly defined by God, but they are defined by God. They don't define who I am as a person. Who I am as a person I'm created in the image of God, for a relationship with God, to share that love, that child of the Father showing the orphans where they're supposed to be. Uh, we're getting close to our end of time for this episode. However, one thing that I would like to briefly discuss, and, and, and it is my firm belief that discipleship is a part of the church church's job the primary job is the parents to disciple mm -hmm. in the home and so what are some in just challenges or encouraging things that you can say to a parent maybe listening of discipling their child whether it's multiple kids or one or two on doing things like this yeah I tell them to marinate in or embrace your curiosity um, everywhere you live everybody who's listening to this 
you not only are surrounded by churches, but I promise you within, <clears throat> for most of us, within half an hour, you're near a cult. So as an example, on our anniversary, my poor wife, I took her to Waco because there's a food network people down there that she loves and the Gaineses. She wanted to see that stuff, the silos. Cool, Waco, Texas. However, Waco, Texas is also the headquarters of and the site of the Branch Davidians. So I, David Koresh. David Koresh, 73 people dying during the administration of uh, Bill Clinton and Janet Reno. So uh, I took my wife there and we took a tour. Now they're actually, what's interesting is they're a group of offshoot of, of the Seventh-day Adventists, very legalistic, very uh, messianically driven and uh, it's almost like going to a Holocaust museum. It breaks your heart on one end, but it's a reminder of why we're here on the other end. An act of fighting injustice, if there's a real heaven, and I believe there is, and if there's a real hell, and I believe there is, and there's one person, one being, that's the difference between those two things, what we do matters. Sharing Christ, who is the only answer, period. So going to that as a parent, taking your kids to that, not just museums, not just to see statues, not just to see historic places, but how about going to see something of the people who need Jesus so emphatically that if they don't know Christ, their world is just going to get darker and darker and darker. Um, I think parents, as disciplers, pass on in their DNA a curiosity, your cultural DNA. Are you curious about your neighbor? Do you know the name of the guy who lives across the street of you? Um, what are his beliefs? What does he think about Christmas? How many lights? Does he think that Easter involves a, 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 a rabbit that lays eggs? Or does he understand why? Does he understand what it's about? I think things like that, you, you're already here. If I won't go across the street, I'm not going to go across the world. Mm. Around the block or around the world, I'm going to go one of the... You cannot be so invested in missions that you're willing to go 50 countries away, but you won't go 50 feet. So I, as a parent, think that it's our job to invest in our kids' curiosity. I take Drake with me when I do lion's dens in state schools. Uh, he watches the hostile. He watches people who try to yell at us and such. I don't care. I don't take the bait. I don't escalate. I don't yell back. Um, he sees it. He, he likes to do it. We sort of pass it on. And being in student ministry long enough that I have been, and isn't very long, but I know and I understand where parents are coming from when they say this, because I see my daughter uh, in this way as well, but we want to protect our kids from things. Yeah. And we try to stay away from exposing them to certain things because we want to protect. And I totally understand that and not necessarily knocking that. But what would you say just as an encouragement to a parent who is very, very consumed with that mm -hmm. and trying to balance the, the impact in culture, but also protection from culture. Right. There, there's an inevitability of exposure, though. Um, I have two options. Pick any topic. Movies, music, television. Option number one, I can teach them avoidance. Don't have a TV. Don't have a radio. Don't have the Internet. And by teaching them avoidance, what I will do is I will prepare them for a much softer world. They're, they're, it's a whole lot less stress-filled. Problem is, as soon as they are out of the home, they're confronted with it. There's an inevitability. Or I can teach them discernment. Discernment is not avoidance. 
discernment is Drake and I will watch a movie and I'll stop it and I'll go all right spot the lie what did we just hear and by the way it's not just in the dark movies horror films or something like that it's in everyday television it's on the front page of the paper we keep hearing people saying believe the science if you believe the science I will state it emphatically men have never no male species has ever given birth ever we don't have a uterus so if you say, well, can men give birth? Yes, they can. You're an idiot because you've just been proven an idiot scientifically, medically, logically, intellectually. You are answering something sociologically. You just want that person who identifies as a man to give birth. But there is no scientific, there's no medical reason. And what we are dealing with right now, you spot the lie. Spot the lie. Tell me what they just said that was either true or not. Doing that, I'm teaching my son discernment. I would rather him walk out of a movie because it offended him than I not let him see that movie. I want both. There are things I will not expose him to. Eargate, eyegate, you know, there are things I don't want him to be exposed to. But I don't want him to be surprised by them. I want him to be disappointed in them. Mm. Discernment and spotting the lie, I think that is perfect. Yeah. And we have to practice as parents to do that as well. Yeah, on learning how to spot the lie. Absolutely. Because a lie doesn't always scream, I'm a lie. It's very deceptive. And so it we is. have to be very it, mindful. Especially lies that are subtle. Because they the worst kind of lie is a lie that sounds very similar to truth. Mm. It's exactly what Satan did in the garden. So he twisted it just enough. I'll show you my failure. Um, I'm so passionate about this. That doing this weekend, I bit off so much. You know, you have three sessions. You want to do 50 things, 80 things. Genesis 3, Satan was the first liberal. Satan was the first liar. He said, this is what God said, but that's not what God meant. You're going to have to take smaller bites. I am too. So defend the reliability, the authenticity, the canonicity of Scripture, the New Testament manuscripts, the Old Testament manuscripts, why we can trust the Bible, archaeology, prophecy, etc. Man, if I try to do too many things, I am dumping an entire silo full of water on top of a bunch of kids who've got a sponge in their hand. This is hard, and this is harsh, and this is a lifelong learning process. I pray that the stuff I wrote 15 years ago in my first books will be rudimentary and have to be updated before I die. That's why I like um, Augustine, because at the end of his life he wrote a book called Retractions. Basically, here's where I messed up earlier. Here's where I want to reapproach you. I want to come back to it. Yeah. Amen. Well, we're out of time, but any final thoughts as we wrap up this episode? Here's a fact, Sam. I believe that what I believe makes me what I am. And I know that what I know is more important than what I feel. We have an entire culture based on feeling right now. Mm. I feel this. I feel this. I don't care. Feeling doesn't answer the question of how do you excise the cancer. You excise the cancer by knowing. I want to get to the point where these things I have written that you might know that Christ is the Son of God. I want an, a rooted, anchored, cemented type of Christianity, past feeling. That's it. Amen, amen. Well, thank you for listening. Do not forget to subscribe and to share and give five stars to get the algorithms to post this everywhere as much as possible. Share this on Facebook, Instagram, stories, wherever you can to get the word out. 
of what God is doing. And thank you so much for listening. God bless and be firmly planted in the scriptures. Thank you for listening to Firmly Planted Podcast, where we dive into the scriptures together. And if you have not yet, please subscribe. Please share with your friends and family who may benefit from this. And we would love to get this in as many hands as possible, not because of me, but because of glorifying God and desiring for others to know God more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Firmly Planted Podcast.